Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Galit Speaks podcast. I am super excited for our next guest. Um, I'm so scared right now because I feel like I'm going to totally butcher her name, and I should have asked her this question before. But Alyssa Berthiumi? Oh, my gosh, so close. Berthium. Berthium. Okay. Uh, she's a professional writer, native Vermonter, practicing feminist, recovering middle child, wannabe superhero, and a mom who's pretty sure she's winging it. She's the lady boss owner of The Right Place, Right Time, her virtual boutique of book coaching and writing guide services, and author of Dear Universe, I Get It Now, Letters on the Art, and Journey of Being Brave and Being Me. As a writing guide, Oh my gosh. Allie serves leaders, entrepreneurs, vision, and visionaries across North America and Europe who know that they have the power to activate healing their own and their readers by sharing their stories and spreading their message. She supports her clients in writing the book that will light up their world and ours. Whether she's writing herself or assisting her clients, Allie believes in emotionally compelling, honest, and powerful stories that are told in authentic voice, come straight from the heart, and celebrate bravery, grit, and hope. If you can catch her not doing all of the things, she's probably drinking maple lattes in a coffee shop, getting lost in a bookstore, or binge-watching something on Netflix in her sweatpants while she eats ridiculous amounts of movie theater-style popcorn. I love that bio, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. You, Thank you, you can tell that you're a writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bios are like this kind of weird uh, skill to have, I feel like, to like zhuzh them up. And I get a lot of comments like, well, you write my bio? My bio is like so boring. <laughs> yeah. And great. I'm like, well, like, don't just focus on like your credentials and like, you know, like the vanilla stuff that you do every day. Like who the hell are you when the, when the door shuts and the lights go off and you're out of your office? Like that's what we want to know about, right? Like we want, we want to know the human that's like doing all the boring shit. <laughs> yeah. And super approachable. I mean, I am also that person watching Netflix in sweatpants. <laughs> I mean, Eating what other way is there? <laughs> like, I mean, I'm not going to watch my Netflix in some sort of like, you know, tight ass cocktail dress. I mean, I don't even own a cocktail dress, let's be honest. But like, I mean, I want to I want to be comfortable if I'm going to binge watch something like I'm going to be there for hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I totally hear that. And I'm so glad that um, I have you on today because you have some amazing topics to talk about. Well, first of all, like your profession is really cool. How did yeah. you get into this? Oh my God. All right. Well, so <laughs> let me see if I can give you the cliff notes version. Otherwise we would have a whole, we would have a whole show just about that. Um, so, uh, cliff notes version starts off very cliche. <laughs> um, I was a little girl with a dream to be a writer. And I always knew since the time I was five that I wanted to be a writer and that's what I was going to do. Um, and so that's all very true. Um, where it kind of uh, kind of veers is that um, as I got older, the dream to be a writer became unrealistic in the eyes of a lot of adults around me. And they kept kind of encouraging, <laughs> highly suggesting um, that uh, I pick something legit 
um, when I went to school, something that that wasn't just writing, something that would pay the bills and keep the lights on. Um, yeah. And so a second passion of mine that I had developed, um, one, because I went to therapy at a young age, like 16 or something, um, but two, because um, I got a chance to take a psychology elective in high school, I developed a real interest and curiosity in psychology and um, was kind of naturally good at it. Uh, just like reading people and kind of understanding like what might motivate somebody or what might make somebody tick. So when I got to undergrad, I got two degrees, one in writing and one in psychology. And then when I was thinking about grad school, I um, decided to go for my master's in marriage and family therapy um, because I was still convinced at the time that writing would be something I would do on the side. Um, but I was unhappy. I got through a year of my program and I was like, oh my God, I'm so miserable. And at the same time, I was teaching women's studies as my assistantship, and I was in love with women's studies. Um, all of a sudden, I had like new language that I didn't have before, like a way of understanding myself in the world that was finally put into like vocabulary that made complete sense, but that I didn't have prior to. And I think that in finding myself through women's studies, I realized that I was on the wrong path in counseling and that I needed to like fill my soul and my soul was always filled the most by writing. So I switched masters, got the MFA in creative writing. That was 2010, but then it took me until 2017 um, to have my life fall apart and the doors open up and say, this isn't it. And so in 2017, it was this critical moment in my life where I had miscarried my second pregnancy. Um, my marriage fell apart. Um, I moved in with my parents. I was headed for divorce. Um, the job that I had, my nine to five, had promised me a promotion. That got stripped away. They gave it to an external candidate. And I was like, this is not what adulthood was supposed to be like. Um, yeah. But the funny thing about your life imploding is that there's no direction to go but up because you've gone as far down as you possibly can. And in that moment, I was like, all right, I surrender. Like, you tell me what I'm supposed to do because I clearly have been missing all your signs and signals this entire time. <laughs> I've been trying to fit myself into some other path or some other box. And it was like, as soon as I released that and I, and I surrendered and I said, you show me the way, like I'm gonna trust now. It was like the right books, the right podcasts, the right people. And it was like, boom, 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 domino effect. And so in 2018, I formed my own business. Six months later, I put aside two months living expenses, walked out of my day job, started the right place, right time. And, you know, I was like on a solo income with a toddler. And this was like not really the right time <laughs> by most standards to be doing this. And yet for me, it was exactly what I needed to be doing. And it's been a freaking roller coaster and rock star show all at the same time since then. Yeah. Yeah. Owning your own business is tough and doing it on your own is exceptionally hard. I mean, yeah. I'm right there. Um, it's I still did, rewarding. <laughs> yeah. But I would not change it for the world. Yeah, me neither. So um, I'm really happy that you listened to your calling and decided to just allow things to happen and yeah. trusted that they were for you. 
Yeah. So, it's hard though, right? Like that's like the hardest thing to learn, you know, like to release, like let go to receive, release to receive, um, you know, trust, faith, listening to your, your inner guidance system, you know, your higher power, like things that are kind of like beaten out of us um, pretty early on. And it's hard to like recover that, you yeah. know, that sense of inner, inner confidence and inner knowing if any of us ever even get back to it. I think a lot of us don't. Um, so I feel really fortunate that I was bold and unabashed enough to say, well, shit, nothing else is going right. So I got nothing else to lose. There's nothing else to lose here. Like, yeah. except for a nine to five, <laughs> which I can always go back and get. So, you know, you live once, you might as well go for it. Yeah, I love that. I love that because that is very much the way that I live. Yeah, it just, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it 110%. And if it doesn't work, I'm going to pivot and I'm going to keep pivoting yeah. until it works out. So I'm really glad that for you, it has worked out and you have found what you wanted to do in your niche. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's a great, it's a great feeling even on the hard days. Yeah. So what is it that I know that you're an author, I know that you're a book coach and I know that you're a ghostwriter. Is there specific topics that you write about? What are the things that really speak to your soul? Yeah. So, um, and this will come as no surprise, but, um, memoir is like my jam in terms of genre. And the reason that I love memoir is because it's like, it's getting into the trenches of the human experience and bringing it forward so that other people can relate to it. And a lot of people know memoir because they know celebrities or uh, notable people who have memoir. I like to work with real people. It's not to say that like if Kristen Bell came to me and said I wanted to write a memoir that I would say no, but um, I don't think that celebrities are real people. And I that probably sounds really harsh, but like I want the everyday person who's just like slogging through the same crap with like, you know, maybe not all of the privilege and maybe not all of the bucks and not to say that people with money and privilege don't have problems. They do. Um, but like, I want to like get down and meet the people. Like I want the, the, the real human grit experiences. Um, I want to work with marginalized voices and diverse voices. Um, I want to pull back the curtain on some of the darkest crap that happens because it does. And we often don't talk enough about it. And so like what that looks like in reality is like 90% of my clients that come to work with me are writing stuff that's about, you know, abuse within their relationships, childhood trauma, um, sexual assault, um, long-term or chronic illness, uh, losing a child um, or a spouse. Um, I mean, cancer journeys, like I'm, I'm not, I am not dealing with the like, you know, unicorns and fairy dust narratives. Um, mm -hmm. We do it with a lot of sass and a lot of humor and a lot of fun because that's just how I freaking roll. But you know, I'm looking at the underbelly of things that people go through and I'm really helping them write a book. But what ends up truly happening is that the book ends up being the byproduct of the experience and working with me. And what truly is given to people first is liberation and empowerment and healing. Yeah. And, uh, you spoke about, um, getting, you know, taking classes and getting a degree in psychology. 
is yeah. that where that comes from? Like, is that where that degree plays in for your life? It is. And you know what? It only, I was just telling somebody this recently. It's really only occurred to me <laughs> that that's what's happened in like the last year. <laughs> okay. Like it's been there the entire time, but like, I couldn't see the connection. I couldn't see how these things tied together. And finally, literally March of this year, 2023, I did a one-to-one -one weekend intensive with a client. And on our last day, we were kind of debriefing and she said, you know, Allie, and it was like, so duh. Like when she said it, I was like, duh, like, why didn't I know this for myself? But she said, you know, Allie, she said, I don't think that you give yourself enough credit for the therapeutic element that you bring to the work that we do. Like you are not just looking at words and saying this is organized or, or, you know, this thought flows together. Like you are diving in there with people. And she was like, just in this one weekend alone, even though I was working on my memoir, she was like, parts of myself that have literally been splintered off for years that I've been working on in therapy, I could feel were coming back together and being reintegrated into myself just with the work we did in one weekend. And that was when it like hit me between the eyes, like, oh, now I get it. Like, this is where that passion for people, that kind of like understanding my intuitive gift is um claircognizance i just know stuff and i don't know why i know it um and i've been like that my whole life like even as a kid like i would know things that were beyond like my years of mm -hmm. experience like some sort of like higher wisdom and so i would like say things to people who are older than me and they'd be like how could you possibly know that you're like 12 you know um and so i think it's it's this like the innate gifts, the formal study have like come together and met in the middle to be like, yo, like I am not only going to help you write some badass shit, but like we're, I'm also going to hear you and see you in a way that maybe other people haven't heard and seen you. And that's going to help you. You won't know it. You think you're coming to me wanting to write a book. You have no idea what else you're about to get out of this experience. Yeah. It makes so much sense to me. Like that was my immediate thought of like, know that like this writing the book is therapy right yeah. like just besides for the work with you know the the work with you like just the act of being able to create a memoir of your experiences helps you process them and yeah, so 100%. you are like a therapist even in just that aspect yeah. Right, a you therapist and book coach clothing. Sneak attack. <laughs> like you, <laughs> yeah, like you're the more approachable therapist. Yeah, right. Yeah, therapy. I mean, I'm a huge proponent of therapy. I'm in therapy. I think everybody needs to be in therapy. But like yes. for the people who feel like they can't be in therapy, like yeah. um, it's so crazy because as you were talking, the thing that was going through my mind. Um, I am a child of domestic violence. And I remember my whole childhood growing up, my mother and I always discussing how we should write a book. Like, and so for her, she is not the type to go to therapy. And I feel like she should write her story 
right? And and as a byproduct, my story will be there, right? But right. I really think that that would be something amazing and therapeutic for her and for someone who, you know, she she has done it her her own way and not and chosen not to go to therapy and chose it to, you know, work through it on her own terms. But I think that this should be something that someone with a life story like that should do. Right. 100%. Tell, tell your story. It's been, it was a crazy ride for us. Yeah. And, well, uh, and I think, you know, who is it that says the, the, it might've been Maya Angelou, the, like the bravest thing that you'll ever do is like speak your truth. Right. Like, yeah. and we, we don't give enough, um, we don't put enough weight in, in exactly what that, what that can mean. And how validating it can be to say this happened and it mattered. And I'm telling you, and I want you to acknowledge that it happened and that it mattered. I don't need you to wish it away for me. I don't need you maybe to say you're sorry, um, though that can be nice and well-intended. You know, I just need somebody to know that like I survived this thing and that thing wasn't okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's really powerful and so validating, right? Yeah, and that's what we all want, really, right? As humans, we want to be validated. Like, we want to know that our existence here matters regardless of the ups and downs and trauma, whether that's domestic violence or assault or, you know, whatever it is. Um, you know, trauma has a way of stripping us down and when we're stripped down and we're in that vulnerable state, we question that, you know, we, we question that kind of like, do we belong here? What is the point of all things? You know, what really matters? Do I matter? If I mattered, why did this thing happen? Right. So there is something truly healing and uh, powerful about even just one other person, you know, being able to say, I see you. And I think that a book allows like a, a, almost like a two-way mirror in a way. Like the reader is saying, I see you because they see themselves. And the author is saying to their reader, I see you because I know you've been through something that I've also been through. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's so powerful. So my next question is going to go a little bit deeper into your life and I hope that's okay. Um, yeah. I want you, if you can, to share a little bit about, you know, I know that you wrote a book about your life mm -hmm. uh, and I'd love for you to share with us a little bit about that and the traumas that you've survived and yeah. how that affected the trajectory of your life and and what you do now. Yeah. So my memoir, Dear Universe, I Get It Now, Letters on the Art and Journey of Being Brave and Being Me is really one of probably, I don't know how many memoirs that I've got in me. Um, that was kind of my debut memoir. And it's essentially, um, it's a it's a collection of letters literally to the universe asking them like, why this, why that? You know, it's picking apart some of my life's critical moments and trying to make meaning from them and figure out what lesson or gift has been offered in that experience, even if it was a painful one. Um, 
And so, you know, there's a number of chapters in there. Some of them are a little bit irreverent because they're from, you know, childhood or something. Um, but you can see that there's like a period, you know, um, where things things become a little bit more complicated and a little bit darker. Um, so, you know, I talk a little bit about having a, a pretty serious long-term relationship in high school with a much older um, guy who was in the military and the stress that that relationship caused me because, you know, my parents knew he wasn't a good match for me. Um, and I didn't realize that he wasn't a good match for me. And I was really stressed and struggling between ha having been raised Catholic and understanding what that meant about my virginity and having given my virginity to him. And that relationship became, you know, very toxic and unhealthy. And I would even say emotionally abusive. Um, but I didn't have any of that language or understanding then, but it like set up this domino effect for like a future relationship that happened in college, um, to also make me kind of vulnerable to that type of partner. And so that one did become hundred percent emotionally abusive, um, complete with, you know, coercive sex and a very faded kind of line as to what was consensual and what was not. And I didn't have a lot of education around the fact that like you could say no to your partner. Like in my mind, it was like, if you give it up once you give it up always. And like, there's no like going back and forth. Um, and around the time that I was in that second kind of, you know, unhealthy relationship, my college roommate died unexpectedly. And so I was 20 and I was like trying to figure out like, wait, young people can die. <laughs> uh, you can be in horrible, unhealthy relationships like the world didn't make sense and at the same time this was also when I was doing all these internships in psychology and I was this very young person who on the summers was working in community mental health as like a case manager and I was working in rape crisis and domestic violence shelter um and it was like all of a sudden I was like seeing the underbelly of the world like you know people who clearly believed their delusions that these were realities and like trying to wrap my head around how these people lived each day, um, you know, with one, with one reality, while the rest of us can see that that reality isn't reality. Um, you know, watching women with children, um, you know, having to share bedrooms with other women with children, you know, their whole kind of like dynamics broken down, seeing women have psychotic breaks, um, psychotic breaks in hospitals, um, women in the middle of the night needing, you know, um, e emergency protective orders, you know, having to call judges, you know, in the middle of the night to get them protection. And I'm, and I'm this like young person, you know, like I don't have teen at the end of my age anymore, but like, truthfully, what do I know? I know nothing at this yeah. point. And it's this kind of rude awakening of trying to figure out and, and kind of reckon with my own experiences and then the experiences of these people that I'm trying to help and really powerful stuff, you know, at that point. Um, but despite, is that, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Another question. Um, is that how you recognized that you were in an emotionally abusive relationship like comparing it to these other women or did you know that going into it? That's a great question. So when I had to do, I had to do like 40 hours of training to become an advocate at the rape crisis center. And that was when I understood for the first time the power wheel 
um, of, and the cycles of abuse, like the honeymoon period, and then, you know, abuse and then forgiveness. And then, right, like you go through this whole thing. And I learned about why women stay and, you know, what complicates things and how isolated it can be and how a lot of the times, you know, emotional abuse is a thing that we can't see, right? Because it's not a bruise. It's not a broken rib. Um, it's not outward and on your body. Um, so I learned so much. And that was definitely when I had language for those two earlier relationships. What's devastating and ironic all at the same time is, you know, you know, not even a year later, I studied abroad in Australia. And within the first 11 days that I was there, I was sexually assaulted. Um, and it was like, I had done all the right things. I had been with a group of people. Um, I, you know, was watching my drink. You know, I didn't have too much to drink. Um, I didn't, you know, go out at dark and walk anywhere by myself. I wasn't wearing anything, um, you know, skimpy. All the things that they would tell you not to do or that they would pick on a victim about, like, in the justice system. I am not suggesting right. that. None of the things know, that actually matter. None of the but, things that actually matter. But, like, in my mind at 20, I'm, like, checking them off right. the box. Like, didn't do that, didn't do that, didn't do that. And, you know, my circumstances were really that there was a guy who had his eye on me even though I had verbalized that I was in a relationship and I wasn't interested. And this one night, me and the girlfriends that I had made went to a bar where he and a group of his guy friends were, and I needed to go to the bathroom. And there was no public restroom at this bar that was at the bottom of this dormitory building. They figured, I guess, since everybody's got their own room, like why put a bathroom in the bar? Because you can just go back to your room and use it. So I asked one person who had a, a, a room on the, that first floor if I could go because that was like the shortest distance. And he was like, no, my room's a mess. Like, you can't come in there. So then I was like, all right, well, I guess I could go back across campus and use a bathroom over there, but I couldn't get any of my girlfriends to come with me. They didn't want to leave the party, you know, fear of missing out or something. So this one guy, you know, said, well, you can come up to my room and use it. Now, I wasn't interested in him romantically, but I also didn't peg him as being somebody who would assault me. Um, right. I mean, I don't know how you really peg that, but like, you know, I was putting my trust and faith into this person and um, and we had spent pretty much the first 11 nights there because one of my girlfriends was like hung up on one of his guy friends and there was no separating us because this girl was like a dog with a bone. Um, yeah. And I was the one who was always like, don't drink too much. Do we have, all I was like the mother hen, like counting the heads of ducks, right? Like, yeah. so I was like this hypervigilant kind of young woman and going up to his room to use the restroom was not my favorite thing, but I honestly thought that it was safer than walking across campus in the dark by myself. That's yeah. like truly the most horrific part probably. Um, so, you know, I, it's like the ride up the elevator, like eight floors, like now in hindsight feels like the longest ride up and the longest ride down and walking down this hall and getting to his room. And interestingly enough, the detail that I remember the most is I went to the bathroom and I remember the bathroom is like white and sterile. There's hardly anything in this bathroom. And then there's all of these bottles of hair gel lined up in a perfect row along the counter. And I remembered like there was something about that that was super off-putting. Yeah. Like maybe I just watched too much true crime and like serial killer stuff, but like 
there was, <laughs> there was just something super off-putting about that one detail, like all the same hair gel, like just lined up perfectly. Like it could not be disrupted. And yeah. when I came out, it was like something had shifted. Um, and then everything's kind of like fuzzy. Uh, and then even though I had all that training with the rape crisis center, um, I couldn't call it, I couldn't say the R word for a while. Like, and I think it was because to say it meant it was real and for it to be real meant things that I couldn't wrap my head around emotionally being halfway across the world with no support. Um, and, but that, that singular event was something that, I mean, just completely changed the next three to six years, like of my life and came back to bite me when I got pregnant the second time and I miscarried, um, that same feeling of helplessness, lack of control, powerlessness, um, my body doing something that I couldn't make stop. Uh, because in, in the instance of my assault, I was a freezer, not a, a fight or flighter. Um, and I blamed myself for that for a really long time. So to now be miscarrying and have no control over whether I was keeping the baby or not felt like another sucker punch. And it was in that same, you know, sacral area of my body. Like, so it it felt like a re-traumatization. The only thing that was better about that experience was that I wasn't afraid to say what it was. I wasn't afraid to call it miscarriage. I wasn't afraid to tell people I experienced it. I wasn't afraid to say this hurts. Um, this is what I need. I wasn't afraid to give that baby a name because I knew that in naming it, it was going to help me heal faster. Um, but there was a lot of really unexpected connections between those two events that, you know, I wouldn't have known would be there um, during that miscarriage because I thought, oh, oh, I've got this all figured out. I've got this healed. Um, but I really don't, you know, it's 2023 that happened in 2000 and six, I think. So it's been a number of years now, but there's like still certain, like even in my own intimate relationship now, like certain positions, I absolutely refuse because they remind me of that moment. There are certain like TV programs that like I can't, or it brings me like right down, right into tears. Um, I have a really mixed feeling about talking about my Australia experience because it wasn't the adventure that I was looking for by, by any means. There's certain songs that will come on that bring me right back to that semester because they were on all the time. And I was obsessing about going to the gym after that experience and in the gym this song was like on a loop. And so even now, if I hear that song, I have to change the channel. Like, I just can't, it can't even, I can't even go there. So um, all of those things kind of make a, make an appearance in the book and a hundred percent shape, you know, shape my empathy with my clients, shape the way that I parent, shape the way that I relate to other um, women with these experiences. I mean, and the list goes on. Yeah. And I want to touch on something that you said um you mentioned that you were a freezer and i know that's a a less understood reaction to to sexual assault and um can you explain a little bit about you know the different responses and 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 specifically freezing and what that's like 
Yeah. So we often talk about fight and flight. We have this like misunderstanding that when we are in harm's way, like um, we're either going to naturally run (laughs) as fast as we possibly can in the opposite direction, or we're going to be feisty and we're going to, you know, throw and kick and punch and like, you know, uh, get rid of the person. Right. Um, And those are all fine responses, but they're not the only responses. Um, there's actually a, a really big number of assault victims who freeze a third F word, um, which essentially actually stems from evolution and a number of um, animals that basically play dead um, because they know that the, their predator is more interested in um, the attack if they're alive, more interested in if they, you know, fight. Um, that some of these animals actually play dead because it's like a defense mechanism. And well, if I'm dead, they're going to stop hurting me and I have a chance. Right. And um, so essentially some of us go back to that kind of evolutionary thing where it comes from buried in our brain, I'm guessing where we're like, well, if I, if I, if I play dead, like I'm actually safer. And I didn't even know that that was like a possibility until I started going for therapy in grad school. So I'm an undergrad when the assault happens, it's my junior year. I'm like on the trajectory for graduate school in a year. I know I've got applications and tests to take. And I, you know, and I've got this relationship with this guy who doesn't believe me, which is a separate story. Um, And so we agree that we're never gonna talk about it. Um, And so I just bury it. And when that PTSD really rears its head, like however many months later after I can't suppress it anymore. Um, then I tell myself, well, I don't have time to deal with it now. I'll go to therapy when I'm in grad school <laughs> because this is the overachiever in me, which I didn't realize was really just a defense mechanism. Like I'm just going to like pour myself into all this stuff so that I don't have to face all of these really hard emotions that are going to break me once I start to pay attention to them. And um, so I got to grad school. I kept that promise to myself. I put myself in therapy and she was like the first therapist that was like, you do realize that this is a very natural response. And I had been beating myself up for it for, you know, however many years at that point, year and a half, at least. Um, Like, I can't believe I didn't fight back. The other thing that happened during that freeze response is I got like significant cotton mouth. And so my nose were like barely audible. Like I could not actually project. It was like they were just trapped. And that's also very terrifying. Um, And the other thing that became apparent to me also in freeze is that not only was I so frozen, but my vaginal muscles also tightened. And I hadn't really recognized that until I was going through like every detail of the assault in grad school, that it wasn't that I had just like, you know, got stiff as a board, but like my internal system was like, eh, eh, like, you know, no entry. Um, and the reason that I couldn't really remember if there was full penetration or not was because I had like kind of stopped him at the impasse. So, um, and then, but then that brought up a new challenge for me. Like, well, is it actually rape? Yeah. Like that even needed to be a question, but this is what our culture has done in not believing victims and trying to like set these parameters around what is actually 
you know, oh, well, rape is only like when it's fully penetrated versus when they're like, you know, bumping up against your inner vaginal wall that's trying to protect you, you know? Um, and so I was, I just had no idea. And so in that therapeutic, you know, experience, we kind of reframed the whole thing of like, my body failed me to my body saved me. And yeah, that was like, that was like the biggest moment towards healing was like, okay, so not only is it not okay that I needed a restroom and this happened, yeah. but my body is so effing incredible that it knew instinctively to shut that shit down in any way that it could. And yeah. I thought, oh my gosh, we don't talk about this. Nobody talks about this. I mean, not only did people really not talk about acquaintance rape or date rape as being really the predominant type of assault, yeah. none of this stranger bullshit, um, like, but we also don't talk about this freeze response, which is a pretty normal, natural evolutionary thing. And the other thing that my therapist said in that moment was like, let's play out these other scenarios. So you run. He's faster than you. He's a gymnast. He's scared that because you're running, you're going to go tell somebody. So he tackles you to the ground. <laughs> and now what? Drags you back by your hair. Like, or let's pretend like you fight back. You know, okay, you've already told me about his physique. You already know he's more powerful than you. Like, so you punch him. It does nothing. He still attacks you. Or maybe it's more vicious because he's pissed off now because you hit him. Um, yeah. Again, this is not to say that people who run or fight, like these are the scenarios, but it was her way of getting me to see that just because I didn't do the other two things doesn't make what I did invalid as a response. And it also doesn't make the assault any less violent or traumatic, you know, for me as the person who experienced it. Um, so it's it's such an important thing. And not just for women in assault, but like also thinking about children, you know, who are defenseless, um, who will carry that guilt of like, well, I didn't try to stop them. I didn't try to say no, you know, and it's like they might have saved themselves without realizing it. Yes, they might have had to endure physical pain and violence, but they also might have lessened the pain and violence. And they also might have lived because they they couldn't react more than to just get through it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's definitely something that I think we we stress so much like, oh, you know, scream, fight back, do all of these things. but. I I will tell you that um, on a different note, like as a child of domestic violence, doing those things makes you get beat up a lot harder. <laughs> like I have done those things and I got the shit beat out of me. And sometimes that freeze and that being able to like turn off any emotion was the only thing that made it stop. Yep. Yeah. And so, it's, association. it's a powerful, it's a powerful thing. Um, 
and we wouldn't have disassociation if there wasn't some sort of uh, need for it. If there, if the brain didn't actually meet, it kind of makes me think of like in pregnancy, right? Like you give labor and then you've got that thing, that hormone that like gets rid of the memory of the pain so that you might do it again. <laughs> um, you know, I kind of feel like disassociation and those types of kind of um, cognitive defenses and mechanisms are kind of the same thing. Like they're they're shutting your they're shutting down one part so that you can get through it, and and get to the next part, which is hopefully that it's over and and you're moving on and eventually getting out of there altogether. So I can definitely see you know the trauma that you've been through and why you tend to gravitate towards these stories from other people that deal in the nitty gritty, the real life, the, the less glamorous sides to, to the world. Um, can you share about something you're currently writing? Yeah. Um, so I have the pleasure and honor of working with one client right now who, um, as a 50 year old man discovered um, through uh, the use of psychedelic therapies that he had been abused as a child by the priest um, within his Catholic school as a very young boy. And um, he ultimately went on to attempt to sue um, the church. They settled out of court. Um, they didn't find the priest credible, which is super unfortunate part of the story. Um, but it has been a really powerful experience working with him for both of us. Um, powerful for him because basically writing a book has been validating his own story and giving voice to his story when the church wouldn't acknowledge and give voice to it. So he has literally taken the power back for himself by doing this. And yeah. it's interesting that when he and I started working together, which was probably 18 months ago now, um, he was very much still, I would say, angry and needing to tell the story, needing, 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 needing to tell the story. And now we're in this place where he's ready to let the story go and be somebody else's. And that is how we know we've come further along in the healing journey. It doesn't mean that he'll forget. It doesn't mean that he won't be triggered. It doesn't mean that there won't be better days and worse days. But what it does mean is that he's in a place where he's ready to not live it every day, to not think about it every day, to not have to say it every day. He's ready to put it out there and have it help somebody else while he figures out how to live kind of this last season of his life in a different place, not just like steeped in the trauma, like quicksand. Um, and for me, um, I mean, it's always an honor to be that deep with somebody, to be that in the know of their story, to be trusted um, with every detail, every horrific detail. Um, it's sacred in a way, even though it's hard. And it also, as a mom to a boy who is the age that his abuse was happening, um, and also somebody who you know, is a quasi-Catholic still. Um, it's been a really interesting journey for me to figure out how 
to talk to my son about good touch and bad touch, uh, trusted people and untrusted people, reasons why anybody should be looking at your body parts and and not um, to give him language and tools that he can come forward if anything like that were to happen, though heaven help me that it doesn't. Um, so, you know, I can't say that I don't take my work home with me, but I take I take what's going to serve my life to pay it forward, even if that means my son, even if that means one reader, you know, I'm I'm in it to not just help the people that I work with. I'm also in it to help the people that they want to help. And that's really how we get that ripple effect going. And so you read in my bio something, um, write the book that lights up your world and ours. And this is what I'm talking about. Writing your book lights you up because when you can shed a little bit of that darkness and that weight, there's more room for the light to come in. But also when you put something out there that resonates with somebody else, you're giving them a chance to see their own light. You're giving them a chance to have a little hope because now they know they're not alone. And I think if we can get one person to affect one person to affect one person, like that's how we change communities. It's it's not like 500 people at a time, you know, sometimes it's like one touch to one touch. Um, and I just think it's really important. And books are like a low hanging fruit. You know, when people can't afford therapy, people can't, you know, uh, work with a coach, when people can't take the time out to get the self-care, they might have enough money to buy a book. They might have enough time to read a few pages. They might have enough time to see themselves in somebody else's stuff. Um, so it's like books, books, words, stories, they've been the thing that have connected us as humans always, like all the way back to like campfires and cave drawings. Um, and they're still just as powerful as they are now. Yeah. Uh, that's a that's a really powerful story and a really powerful message. And I'm so glad that you are there to help people write it because um, just in my own experience, like I am, <laughs> So I read a lot of books, but I am the person that was always like, I don't like writing. <laughs> I, so when you say like you knew at like age five, you were going to be a writer. I knew at age five, I did not want to be a writer. At five, I know I'm not going to be a writer. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're bridging that gap. So someone like me could still tell their story yes um without having to be the one fully entrenched in the writing of it a hundred percent can i just like demystify something about ghostwriting for folks yeah and it's totally related to what you're just what you're saying people have a misperception that the ghostwriter is is as much the author as the person who's paid the ghostwriter. And that's not true. The ghostwriter is like the hired pen. They're the conduit. They're the surrogate for the story. They're the person taking the time to write the words, but they're not the, they're not the ghostwriter's words. The story still a hundred percent belongs to the person whose story it is. So if you and I work together on your book, it's your book. You're hiring me to do the shits you don't want to do. Just like we hire a plumber to fix the toilet or, you know, um, somebody to put oil in the car or whatever, right? Like 
you're hiring me to do something that you know I can do better than you can do, but it doesn't mean that like the toilet isn't yours, <laughs> right? Like the toilet's still yours. The car is still yours, right? You're hiring somebody else to, to do better with it than you can. Um, so, you know, you are the author, you hundred percent own that property and those rights. Um, the ghostwriter doesn't even have to be appearing on the cover. They don't have to appear in the acknowledgements. Um, the reason it's called ghostwriting is because the ghost isn't supposed to be known. Like, so that the author whose story it is can get the spotlight and get the attention because it is theirs. It, what they have to say belongs to them. And that's true even when it's not memoir. Like if somebody hires a ghostwriter for nonfiction, you know, uh, like a business book or something, if it's their words and their thoughts, it still belongs to them. The ghostwriter is really just, I shouldn't say just, they have a big job, but the ghostwriter is there to provide a service. Yeah. So um, how do you work with people? What are the different ways that people can work with you and how, how do they do that? Um, so the two primary ways that people work with me are either as a coach or as a ghostwriter. And there's not too many differences really between those two things. Um, I bring the same level of energy. I bring the same collaborative spirit, intimacy, energy, like all those things are all the same. And a lot of my kind of more organizational or systemic processes to get a book done also remain the same. The biggest difference between the two of these things is who's doing the writing. Yeah. So if I'm coaching, then the client is doing the writing and I'm serving as the guide. If I'm ghostwriting, I'm still guiding the process, but I'm doing the writing and the client is actually in the review seat. So I'll write something and send it and they have to say, yes, that's accurate. Yes, that sounds like me. Yes, you have those things in the right order or those details are accurate, but they're not having to do any of the writing. Um, both paths highly collaborative. You can't just like dump your story on me and then walk away. Like it doesn't happen by osmosis. <laughs> that would be really great if it did, but it doesn't. Um, so there's a lot of talking, um, a lot of interviewing. There's a lot of me being really curious and asking a lot of stuff and the client having to be really open and vulnerable. That's how we get the best, the best final product. The more, the more we've got to work with, the better off the book. Um, it's entirely virtual. And it's a lot of talking and like looking at words, <laughs> like that's the best way that I can, I can summarize it. Um, best way for somebody to start on that path with me. Uh, I offer a 20 minute free call that I call a story stroll. Um, and this basically means that I, I give you a ring old school, no video stuff, just call you up. Um, I go for a walk while we have a casual conversation, you tell me about the book, you tell me what your problems are in terms of the writing or the publishing or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, I talk to you about what I know for 20 minutes, it's like 20 minutes of free advice. Um, and if you want to move forward, you like my energy, you want to know how I work, we can get on, a, we can get on a longer call after that, still totally free um, to talk about how I work. But I like those 20 minute story strolls because they're less intimidating to folks. Um, it's a chance for us to just like jump in, tell me the story, let's get to the good stuff. And, um, it's like no pressure to like sign a contract, figure out how I work. Like, let's just talk about the thing in your heart that you want to, that you want to say. And often the thing that's bothering people at the beginning is do what I have to say. Is it valid? Is it relevant? Will anybody care? Right. And if we can get past that garbage, like relevancy, validity, like, will anybody give a crap? 
and we can get you, the author, the client on board with believing in your story, then we got a whole other ballgame. Yeah. So I have another question. When, let's say you've written the story, right? Um, do you help with the publishing or making it available to people? So where where I you know kind of jump in there is I kind of serve as a mediator. <laughs> um, I know a lot of people, editors, cover designers, typesetters, um, publishers, uh, all the people that you could possibly need to take your manuscript all the way to the finish line. I can connect you with a whole bunch of different people. And I try to do some like tailor matching. Once I know you and your book really well, I can kind of say, oh, I think that you're going to like so-and-so and so-and-so because I think your energies are going to match. Or I know that your goals are X and this publishing company is a good fit for that. And so I'll do introductions. A lot of the time I'll actually get on a call with the client and with the person and do not just an introduction, but I will actually facilitate the conversation um, between them to make sure that the client's best interests are met the client's questions, and then and then some are getting asked. Because the thing that ends up happening is I got a lot of people who've never written a book before. So yeah. it would be great for them to have an introduction, but they don't know what they should be asking because they've never done it. You know, me as somebody who's more of an expert than them, I can get them on the call and be like, you know, okay, hey, so-and-so, please run it, run us through your process so that my client can hear how you work. And then I kind of like translate. When they get all like industry language jargony and yeah. my client's eyes start to roll in the back of their head, you know, I can like jump in and be like, okay, client, like this is what they mean. Or, hey, can you elaborate on what you mean from your perspective? Because this is the way that I understand it. Is that, you know, the same? So um, I handhold all the way up until that, that handoff. We get the manuscript done. And then I try to put that person with the best possible hands who are going to take it from there and bring it all the way through to where it's publishable and saleable. That's, that's amazing. And that, I feel like that service is so needed because yeah, if you're just a regular person and you're trying to write your story, you just wanna get your story out there and you don't really know what you need to do in order to do that. So someone like you is, seems like just a key component um, that most people are missing. Yeah. So, and not every book coach or ghostwriter necessarily takes it to that level. Like they might agree to like two revisions and then you're out, you know, or they might be like, well, here's a manuscript. Good luck. Um, you know, uh, I'm like, no, 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 no. Like that ain't going to help anybody. The last thing I want is for them to have a beautiful manuscript and they pick the wrong publisher and it gets published and it looks like garbage after all of those months and all of that investment. Um, so I'm like, no white glove service, VIP treatment, like the, you know, if we were in person, I would pop the bubbly and we would drink to it, but you know, every, everything is virtual. So I, I do as much kind of like, you know, high end kind of quality service as I can in that virtual, in that virtual model. Nobody's complained so far. So I think I'm doing okay. Um, yeah. and the one thing that I can say is like, if you're like, yeah, no, I can't with her. She's too much. <laughs> you know, I do have um, a co-authored book coming out at the beginning of next year called Don't Write a Book Until You Read This One. And it's for the nonfiction author who wants to independently publish. And it's like a soup to nuts book on, you know, what you should be thinking about before you get started. What does the publishing landscape look like? What does marketing your book look like? What does developing a manuscript look like? It's chocked full of um, appendices 
action items, takeaways. It's like the desk reference that you want to have if you're thinking about this and you don't know where to begin and you don't want to spend 15 hours going down the Google rabbit hole trying to figure out if what you read is legit or not. Yeah, that's that's an awesome resource. When does that come out? Uh, we're shooting for probably mid to late February of 2024. But if people come like hanging out with me on LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever, um, or join join my email list on my website, then they're going to know as soon as it's available for pre-sale, which will happen before the end of this year. Okay. And so if people want to hang out with you and find out what you're all about, how do they do that? How do people get in touch with you? Yeah. So on Facebook, um, it's at the right place, right time. Um, and that is the first right is W-R-I-T-E. And the second one is R-I-G-H-T. So Facebook and YouTube, the handles are the same at the right place, right time. Um, Instagram, um, A-Y Berthium. That's how I, that's like my personal kind of how I publish under, um, and I gave up on my business one a long time ago. So if you want to hang out on Instagram at A-Y Berthium, B-E-R-T-H-I-A-U-M-E. Um, LinkedIn, I'm pretty sure it's also A-Y Berthium at, at, on the other side of the slash. Um, and I'm predominantly, I would say out of all the places I'm on LinkedIn the most, because that's where I tend to find the most engagement and the most, most of my kind of ideal client. Um, and then my website, like, honestly, if you just go to the website, you're going to find how to get to all the other places. So, um, the right place, right time.com. And again, W R I T E first, first, right. And R I G H T second one. Perfect. Thank you so much for being here, Allie. Um, this was amazing and so informational and we touched on so many things that are so dear to my heart and I, I can't thank you enough for just being here and so openly and vulnerably sharing your story. Thank you for having me. This was amazing. Okay. If you're watching this now or watching on the replay, please feel free to comment like, share, subscribe. Um, if you know somebody that needs to hear this, please make sure to get this to them um, and binge watch all of the other episodes and um, and definitely reach out to Allie. Uh, I already know that, that I have some things percolating in my mind and, and maybe sometime down the line, I will reach out to you or maybe I can get my mother and I to reach out to you so that you can write our story. Um, yeah, because I think it's, I have one of those stories that I need to get out there. And that is why I created this podcast. It was, it was meant to be because I'm not a writer, right? Like I always wrote really well and I just hated doing it. Um, yeah. and talking seemed like so much easier for me. It's also why I do live streams. It's just like, I want to just like be able to just get it out. I don't want a script. I don't want, you know, yeah. To think about editing. I just want to get it out and talk. Um, so it would be amazing to see how I could turn that into a book. Uh, yeah. Well, you need to book yourself a story stroll, my friend. That's where we're going <laughs> to start. Okay. Like that's right. where we're going to begin. And, um, and you're not alone. Like you are among a very big group of people who are like, can I just talk to you? And you just like, 
do some stuff <laughs> on the yeah. other side because so many people feel way more comfortable and way more natural to like say their story than they are to write their story. So you are not alone, my friend. Um, and there's definitely a book or several in you. I know it. Yay. Okay. All right. So I'm going to book my story stroll. Um, and for everyone that is watching or listening, please also book your story stroll. I want to hear all of your stories. Um, and until then, you, you know, I'll be here on this podcast next week. So <laughs> until the next episode of the Galit Speaks podcast, I will see you. Bye, everyone.